you so much, Maddie. Uh, I'm thankful for Maddie because uh, she is truly a deacon, uh, a deaconess of this church. She has been in from the very beginning. One of our goals uh, at Redeemer is to be a multi-generational church that reaches the next generation for Christ. And um, Maddie was on board from the, from the very jump. And she's been just a, a great joy to, to my life, to my family's life, and the life of, of this church. She has served and served and served. And what was really special was 53 weeks ago, uh, basically 365 days ago, almost to the day, uh, Maddie was our scripture reader for our very first Sunday. So it's actually really special. Uh, happy birthday, Redeemer, because this is the, the one-year anniversary of us being a, uh, a visible uh, congregation to the city of Wichita Falls. And so it is a, it is a really, really fun day, a fun day that uh, we want to celebrate in multiple different ways. Uh, we're starting a new uh, sermon series going, jumping into the Gospel of John, and I hope you are really, really excited about that. Uh, so that's one of the ways that we are kind of celebrating a, a new start with a, a new year and a new sermon series. And uh, another thing that is really, really exciting about today is we want to really live out one of our primary values, which is family. And, uh, and so everyone that is here today... Uh, whether you RSVP'd or not, we have plenty of food. We encourage you to stay with us and let's share a meal together right after this just to celebrate what God has done in our midst. It's going to be right in the uh, sculpture garden, um, so just right out here. And so whenever you leave here today after we uh, send you um, after the benediction, you can go right down these stairs and then head to the right and uh, go and pick up a, a free gift uh, for us, because from us, because of uh, our one-year celebration, and then uh, organize getting your family situated or just yourself situated with food, so that we can all share it together. Uh, if you have if you have plans, uh, I encourage you cancel those plans and tell them to come here <laughs> instead. All right, tell them to come and eat and and, and uh, enjoy our fellowship together um, as a gospel-centered disciple-making family. So we've had so many things that God has done uh, this year. Uh, it's been a challenging year. Uh, we're feeling the effects of it. I, I had multiple calls this week about breakthrough cases of COVID-19, which is really, really tragic. Uh, a breakthrough case is the, those that have been fully vaccinated and still get COVID. And so we're kind of like, what in the world is going on here? But God is still faithful. Uh, we're always going to be a visible church that gathers. God is not confused by COVID-19. Um, he is sovereign over all things, which includes, which our text will actually help um, expound upon today. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he is uh, not unaware or out of control. This thing is not outside of the grasp of his hands. And so uh, let's uh, faithfully press in, faithfully press into what the Lord is calling us, even in the midst of trying and hard circumstances. By God's grace, in 365 more days, we'll be able to celebrate um, birthday number to and get to rejoice again of what, of what all God is doing in our midst as we gather week in and week out, not just here, but also within our homes, within our grow groups, to, to try to make disciples who make disciples. So this year, we, this year we've seen baptisms, we've seen people come to faith for the very first time, and I want to share with you one of the, the primary metrics of, of excitement that I have as a pastor. 
the, the primary metric of excitement that I, I, I've tried to instill within Redeemer from the very beginning is we're not going to celebrate Sunday numbers. We're not going to celebrate the number of gospel communities that we multiply or anything like that or the number uh, of grow groups that we have started. We are going to celebrate and rejoice in the number of disciple makers that are being produced within this congregation. That is, our, that is our ultimate goal, is we want to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. And one of the ways that we know that we're living up to our values is that we are making and reproducing disciples who make disciples. This is the call. This is the call of our Lord. And we want to faithfully live it out, to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. Amen? Will you pray with me? As we pray for those that can't be with us because of COVID-19 and um, just praying for, uh, uh, for thanks of this year and his blessing for the year to come. Father, we need your grace. Day in and day out, we need more of Jesus. We need fuel for our soul. You are the light of men. And, and, and the light, light will always overshadow the darkness in this world. And so, Holy Spirit, Father transform, transform the way that we reflect and think about what Jesus has done in our place. Um, Produce such great change within our heart that we we leave here excited, week in and week out. Whenever we leave our gospel communities, we leave excited. Whenever we leave our grow groups, we leave excited because we are treasuring Christ and you're making yourself known. Lord, you said in your word in John 16, that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Lord, help us see. Help us see with clear eyes, with the eyes of our heart, how you are overcoming the world in the midst of the deepest trials that we can face. And then propel us out as a congregation so that next year we can celebrate what you've done in our place and how many disciple makers uh, you are producing within our body. And in 10 years, we can say the same. And in 20 year, 25 years, we can say the same. And we can live out our mandate to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family here in Wichita Falls, in our neighborhoods, all the way to the nations. Produce that deep in our hearts. Thank you for the fruit that you've already produced we, we rejoice in that, and we're so thankful for it. And, Lord, we, and yet we pray for more. We pray for more. We pray that you protect this body from uh, the plague that is going on all around us. I pray that uh, those that are at home sick, that you bring comfort. You bring comfort, that you raise up servants within this body to care for those that, um, that can't join with us. Because we are the called out, sent ones that pr- go into chaos and do not flee away from it. Produce within us a desire to function together as a family that's filled up with the gospel, that carries out the mission of God. Do that because you're great. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the sermon series that we are starting through the Gospel of John is called So That You May Know. So That You May Know. And what we see at the very end of John, this is where we get it, in John 20, verse 31, John is writing about all the things that were written uh, here in the Gospel of John. And it says, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Everything that is written down in the Gospel of John wants you to know and understand that you can trust. You can trust and you can know intellectually and with your heart transformatively 
that Jesus is the Christ, the only way to salvation. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Amen? So today what we're going to see is we're going to see a definition, a a preliminary definition of who God is, that God is not like us. Uh, Spoiler, okay? (laughs) He is not like us. He is totally and utterly different than us. He is multipersonal. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage. Jesus is uncreated. God is uncreated in his essence, but yet in his essence, there is beautiful, beautiful communication between himself, between himself. And so today, we want to get a God perspective of what, uh, of who he actually is. Because if we can't get this first thing right, guess what? Whenever things get hard in the Christian life, if we don't know and understand the foundation of who he is, we're going to make up in our mind something that God is actually not. And then we're going to say that God is not good because he's not good if he's not centered, if the definition of who God is is not centered on the word. Not centered on the word. And so uh, my parents uh, unfortunately can't be with us. Uh, one of my cousins is getting married in Aspen. So, you know, they're roughing it in Aspen right now. Um, but uh, w- one of the beautiful things, if you've ever been to uh, that mountain range, is you have different perspectives the higher elevation you go, right? And so at the bottom, you can say, oh, you know, there's pretty trees and stuff. But if you ever get to one of the summits in Aspen, you say, wow, everything looks totally different. I get a new perspective of where I am. I get a new perspective of what's going on here and how kind of the terrain works and where I've been and where where I can go from here because you're at the top. That's what we need, and that's how John starts. John starts with a big God perspective of who he is, of who he is and how he communicates who Jesus is. And my hope is that we know and understand and love the doctrine that we're going to learn about today because today we see two things. Two things about, about God that John is teaching us. Number one, that God is in loving communication with himself. So if you're taking notes in that uh, black little thing, that would be a good thing to kind of, as a, as, a uh, as a header, if you're taking notes with us. But God is in loving communication with himself. And the second thing that we're going to talk about today is God is in coordinated creativity with himself as well. So he's in perfect communication, he's in loving communication with himself, and he also has coordinated creativity with himself. The Greek word with here is really, really important. Look at John verses uh, of chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, here it is, with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You know what this means? It means that there was never a time that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were not together in perfect harmony and in perfect peace. This is a beautiful reality that we have to get. Jesus wasn't an afterthought after the fall. He wasn't someone that had to come up with a plan of how they were going to work out the plan of redemption. Jesus has always been with the Father. The Son has always been a, a, a person of the Trinity. The Spirit is, is implied here. It's not ex- explicitly shared, but he, he is implied here. And he is holding together the unity of the Godhead. The unity that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have had forever. Forever. I know if you try to think about that for just a split second, your brain will explode. Mine does too. But this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. He goes on to explain it down in verse 18 a little bit. 
No one has ever seen God. Look at this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. That's an interesting point. Um, He has made him known. What that says in the King James Version, or even if you have a little Bible, they'll have a note. If you have an ESV Bible, they'll have a little note that says this. He was in the Father's bosom. Now, that's not language that we use right now. That's why the ESV said he was at the Father's side. But literally what that says is he is nestled up within the Father. He's nestled up within the Father. He, he has his head rested on the Father. There is a unique, close, intimate oneness between God the Father and God the Son here. Now think about this. Think about this. How many people in your life can just nestle up to your chest at any moment? How many people in your life can do that? All right? I can think of four. I can think of four people in my entire life that can do that. My wife, Evan Brooks and Cannon that they have free reign. They have free reign to just come and nestle up to me at any point uh, at any point during the day. And it brings me great delight whenever they, whenever they do this. And look at how it describes God the Father and God the Son, that they are nestled up together, that they are nestled up together in oneness and in, in a unique intimacy right here. Now, not even my friends can do, can do that. Uh, your friends can't nestle up to you right in the chest at any, at any point, right? Remember that, my friends. Remember that, um, that you can't do that. Um, and not, even my, not even my parents can do that. Now, I used to be able to do that with my parents. But now there, there's an intimacy that has, been, that has changed with me leaving and cleaving. And, and now not even my mom and dad can do that. Isn't that unique? That there is a closeness here that Jesus, uh, that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us through his word. Through his word. And this is what's interesting. Uh, God the Father is spirit. He doesn't even have a body. Doesn't even have a body. So how are they nestled up together? They have this unique spiritual oneness that is deeper, more beautiful than anything that we can wrap our heads around. They have perfect love. They have perfectly shared goals. They have perfectly shared values. They have perfect understanding of who one another is. They have love and affection. They have love and affection that goes beyond comprehension. Goes beyond. And the greatest, the greatest joy that I get as a pastor uh, of Redeemer over this past year has been, you know what, Cody, I get it. I see it in your word. I see it in God's word that, that the values that Redeemer Church has of being a gospel-centered, disciple-making family I, I see it. I want to commit my life to it. Man, that brings me such great joy. Because what's happening then? Our value systems are aligning. They're aligning. They're coming side by side. And joy is filled whenever value systems are aligning. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have had this perfectly for all of eternity. And I, because this is what's unique. I know that there's probably different definitions of disciple making between me and the person that shares that. I know that there's probably different definitions of gospel centrality that we wouldn't actually use the exact same vocabulary. I know that family, there's probably different hurts that this person is feeling that, I, that I'm not feeling or vice versa. And so the value system isn't even shared, but just that little glimpse of communication to where we say, I'm on board, let's do it. Think of the joy that produces. Now God the Father and God the Son have had that for forever. There's never been a moment never been a moment that they didn't share this unique spiritual oneness. And what this is talking about, you can maybe get a glimpse in marriage, just a tiny, tiny glimpse in, in a marriage, just a couple of times throughout your, throughout your marriage as well. 
to where there's this unique and close oneness where everything about your person aligns together to where you really feel like, hey, you know what? We're one here. We're one relationally. We're one spiritually. We're one emotionally. We're one physically. And that only happens a couple of times, but think of the joy that that brings. And this is what it is talking about. There's, it's so hard for me to express this because it's so hard for us to even grasp the unity that God the Father and God the Son have from the very foundation of the world. Isn't this unique? Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this something to cherish? Everlasting joy, everlasting power and self-giving, everlasting glory between the two of them. And Jesus says that he's inviting us into this. John chapter 17, verse 5. We actually looked over this uh, briefly a couple of weeks ago whenever we were going through our values. But you know what it says in, in verse 5? It says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's saying, glorify me. Glorify me. Make me known to my people. Make me known to my people so that they can see and taste the beauty, the beauty of the oneness that we have together. Think of a gift. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to drive this home so we can get a glimpse of how beautiful and foundational this is if we're going to understand the gospel at all. Think of the best gift that you have ever received. A gift has certain elements to it, does it not? Right? And certain elements that, that, that really, there's usually a shock value into it. Like if you knew the gift was coming, you know, some, some of the excitement kind of just wanes away, right? But if someone goes out of their way to surprise you for where you didn't see it coming, that it was exactly what you wanted and you knew and, and you didn't feel like anyone in the world knew that, that's a good gift, right? And they bring it to you with a shock value and a surprise and, and it culminates in just this wonderful experience of how did you know? This is amazing. I've had a, a couple of gifts given to me that way that just blew me away that blew me away, and the closeness that I felt with the gift giver was so, so unique. Do you feel it? Do you feel that's what God has had forever with himself? Forever, all of eternity, he has always had that. That experience, that feeling has always been manifested within the Godhead. Isn't that amazing? Uh, one pastor said this a long time ago. It says, no child has ever, has ever been at one, this close at oneness with his mother. No husband has ever been this close as oneness with his wife. No person has ever been at closeness with this oneness with his own soul. Only the son and the father have had this unique, unique oneness that the Bible is talking about. Perfect unity, perfect love, perfect self-sacrifice self-sacrifice, together working in perfect unity and harmony. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I've had with you before the world existed. And my fear is this is so far beyond us that this is boring, that we're bored by this. Because we can't, we can't comprehend it. We can't grasp it. We can't grasp the unity the unity, the beauty, the beauty of what God the Father and God the Son have had from all of eternity. But if we get a glimpse, it's transformational. If we, we get a glimpse of it, we, we, can, we can be transformed by the, the beauty of it. And it's hard for us as fallen create creatures of his creation 
of his creative power to get this with a pure heart and with a pure mind. But we're called to understand the transformational unity that God the Father and God the Son have had for all of eternity past, that they've never not had it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that we need to understand. So that's number one, that God has perfect unity. He has perfect unity within himself. And then also, he has creative. He has creative power that he works through, through himself. Verse 3 says this, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See the creativity. Everything that we can think of is not original with us. It originated in the mind of God. Everything that you have created, you're just ripping off of him because he is the original creator. All of our create, uh, creative juices that we have flowing through our body are just a gift from him. Isn't that amazing? He is the ultimate creative being. He, we, we are able to be creative because we're made in his image. And so our creativity is just a tiny glimpse of how powerful and how beautiful and how winsome and how awe-inspiring God actually is. And uh, scholars say that John was most likely thinking of Proverbs chapter 8, verses 29 through 31, whenever he's talking about the first couple of verses in whenever he's thinking about writing the first couple of verses. And what Proverbs does is it talks about the creative power of God and how wisdom was always with God in his creative power. Let me read it to you so you kind of see what I'm talking about. And, it, and God, what um, John has done is he has applied that the wisdom of the word of God, the creative wisdom of the word of God is actually what Christ has been. As Christ has been as he was side by side with God for all of eternity. It says, when he, being God, assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress, transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the world, then, wisdom, I was beside him, like a master workman. And I, I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that I was always with him. I was rejoicing over the creative power that God has made. There is nothing that was made that was not made by God. That is why our call to worship was Colossians 1.16, which is such a powerful, powerful image of how our great God is. Let me read it again to us. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created for him and through him. Everything that was created was for him and through him and by him and to him. This is how great our God is. Nothing that has been made. Is, not, is something that shouldn't reflect to his glory. Everything that has been made points to how great our God is. Everything that has been made. And it says that whenever creative powers were flowing out of him through his word, there was rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Rejoicing of God himself in his creative power, that interper the multipersonal God that we serve, the triune God, the Trinity. The Trinity is what we're talking about. God the Father and God the Son having perfect communication between one another. It was like, um, it's, it's kind of like a mirror. Have you ever been in a, in a bathroom or something that has two mirrors that face one another? <laughs> 
And uh, what happens? What happens whenever two mirrors face one another and you turn on a light? They just reflect for eternity, and like you almost get disoriented because you just see for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Right? In the same way, in the same way, what God is saying, everything that is being made is a reflection of His infinite, of, of His infinite personhood that makes Him beautiful, kind, creative, and this is something that we have to focus our hearts on so that we understand who we are and what he has done. Because if we understand who we are and what he has done, if we get the creature-creation distinction right from the very beginning, that all things are for him and through him, then guess what? Then guess what? We understand that he created all things not so that we will just bow down and worship him and be little minions um, with his thumb over us? No, no. Let me put it this way. You know why he created? You artists out there, look at me. All you artists in, in this room, I know, I know there's so many, so many of them. Your artistic work is not complete until when? Until you share it. Until you share it with someone else. Then you know, oh, I got something here. There's, a, there's, there's something beautiful. There's something, there's something divine here. There's something that reflects our, the image of our God really, really well here. And really, no one has ever painted a masterpiece and put it in the closet and never showed anyone. Because then it, would not be a, it wouldn't be a masterpiece at all. Art, art is meant to be shared. The finished work, the finished product of all of our creative juices is whenever it is shared. You know what that means? That God... God, whenever he relished in the joy and the unity that he had with himself for all of eternity, the only thing left to do was what? Was to share it. That's why we're here. That's why we're, that's why we're here. That's why you are here. Because God has decided to share his self, himself with his creation. Because it is worth everything. It is worth everything. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Um, God had decided to create a creature who could enter into the dance of the Trinity with him. Isn't that beautiful? That the only reason that God decided to create is because he wanted to welcome us into relationship with him. He wanted to share. He wanted to share. John uh, fifteen eleven says this. It says that these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be be complete. Why are you here, Redeemer? Why do you exist? Why do you exist? So that you can experience the joy that God has had for all of eternity. That is the purpose of life. That is the purpose of your existence. And if you, if you get God wrong, you will never understand the underlying foundation of why, why has this whole thing started. This is what God, this is what God is speaking to us today. Through his word, he's trying to help us understand that the foundation, the foundation of who we are as followers of Jesus started with God deciding to share himself. He decided that he wanted to share himself. And this is hard for us to believe whenever we think that God is here not just not to, to be whatever, but God is here to serve us. Whenever we put ourselves at the center of our life, guess what? Everything falls apart, does it not? Uh, our selfishness grows and grows, and our appetite for that never, never is quenched. And we think God is really just here to serve us. 
And let me say this. I think there's three ways that I've noticed here in the Bible Belt that we get this wrong. That we get this wrong. The purpose of who God is and who we are. And the three primary ways are, are this. I, I didn't get this. This is, this is not uh, original with me, but it's been very widespreadly um, shared amongst evangelicalism. But I've noticed it to be true, especially here in North Texas Bible Belt. Uh, we want to serve a God that wants our moralism, that is therapeutic towards us, and is not really the interpersonal creative God of Scripture, but he he is the deistic God that is out there in the cosmos and maybe aloof and at best indifferent. But yeah, sure, he created everything. And so I think there's so many of us in this room that if we're not careful, we get caught up in this moralistic therapeutic deism rather than being captured by, captured by the joy that we get to delight in, how, in who and what God has made us to be. So let's break those down uh, very quickly before we leave. What does it mean? What does it mean to believe the lie that God just wants our moralism? He just wants our moralism. This sounds like, um, it can be summarized like this. I've said this before. Don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with those who do. All right? Don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with those who do. Uh, This is uh, the idea of really all God wants you to do is to be more moral. Get your stuff together. Uh, clean, clean your room. Get your act together. Be, be a contributing member to society. That's why you join the church. That's why you should come and be a part of this whole Christian thing because it, it sets up good morals and it gives you a, a good place for your family and uh, it, it will help you in this way or that way and it will make you respectable within the community. Now, there are things in the Bible that talk about um, uh, not drinking and cussing and uh, being filled with anything other than the Holy Spirit. But if you're using the Bible, if you're using the Bible as a list of rules that you have to follow, you're missing the heartbeat behind what God is trying to do and communicate to us. What is the heartbeat of any command from, from God? He's trying to show you his heart. He's trying to show you what it means to follow him, to love him, to cherish him. And whenever we have a relationship with him, the natural inclination of our heart is to say, God, what do you command? Because I want to do it. Not do this and then maybe you, you will be accepted. But God, because you have accepted me through Christ and Christ alone, I want to be and act just like you. I want to be just like you. I want to act just like you. I want my speech to reflect that. I want my habits to reflect that. I want the way that I interact with people to, be, to reflect that. And so it, it becomes down more to Christian maturity than it comes down to this is the, the prime, primary reason for why we um, subscribe to the whole Jesus culture. And so I think so many of us in this room, we get disillusioned whenever we fall into this moralism trap, because guess what? It's never been about relationship. It's never been about entering into the dance of the Trinity with God. You just want God to give you the things that you want in your life. And so if you say, if I uphold my side of the bargain over here, if I'm moral, if I follow the Ten Commandments, and I try to follow them as best as I possibly can, then God, you owe me. You owe me. And if he doesn't uphold his side of the bargain, what happens to our hearts? We get angry. 
we get angry at God. And this is evidence that you never wanted God for God. This is evidence that you were trying to use God to get what you wanted. You see how that works? We fall into this trap of moralism all the time. The second trap is God is here to therapeutically fix my brokenness. God is here to therapeutically fix my brokenness. So this idea of therapy, um, I'm, I'm not about to bash it or anything like that. I think there are godly Christian counselors out there that can help us work through different areas of trauma that can then help us work through um, repentance and forgiveness towards other people and help us grow into maturity. I'm not bashing any idea of therapy, but if our hope is in God giving us uh, this arbitrary sense of, uh, why don't you just fix all these things that I see as broken within myself? Who's on the throne there? Is God on the throne Is Jesus Lord that says, I'm going to take you and mold you and shape you however I see fit? Or or are you on the throne? And you say, God, I will only be happy in you if you fix the things that that I see as broken within my own heart. You see that? Do you see that? And what happens within uh, my generation around, there's a a Peter, Peter Reef wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, where he said this. He said, we're getting dangerously close to where the church is not functioning together as a family. Therefore, the only people that we will be honest with are our therapist. The only people that will actually know who you are is someone that you pay to go see. My hope for Redeemer Church is that we function together as a gospel-centered family. That means that we weep with those who weep, we mourn with those who mourn, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we act as family, and we open up our heart, and we pass the vulnerability threshold again and again and again, even at great cost to ourselves, because we have been filled up with the grace of Jesus, and that transforms us to be able to be vulnerable with those that may or may not reciprocate in the way that we want them to. So yeah, it's risky. Absolutely it's risky, but it's worth it. And the fearful thing of this is we will walk away from God if our heart is captured by this idea of God is just here to therapeutically fix a couple of things that I see as big sins in my life. Jesus is Lord. He created you to commune with the Trinity that has existed from all of eternity. He's welcoming you into goodness that you can't even comprehend right now. Do not cap it out with saying, God, if you don't fix these things in my life, the number one thing, way I'm going to get back at you is withhold worship. You're only hurting yourself. You're only hurting yourself. So we have to be careful not to fall into this idea of God just wants me to be moral. God is just there because he's useful. He's useful, and he might even be aloof, which is basically deism. You say, Cody, how could this be not Christianity? I believe that there's a God out there. I believe that there's a God. Christianity is so much more than that. If, you, if you've taken American history, right, then you, American history and public school, they love to tell you about how all the founding fathers, they weren't really Christians. They were just deists, even though there's great evidence that a lot of them were born again 
Bible-believing Christians that had cultural blinders the same way that you and I have cultural blinders today, right? Can we admit that? Can we say yes and amen? And so because of that, because of that, we all kind of have, if you've been, if you've been uh, in public, publicly schooled or whatever, just like I, like I was, you have a very clear understanding of what deism is. Is God, yeah, sure, we can't figure out, like, how God could be anything other than just the creator. And so he created, and he doesn't care, and then he went on to go do other God stuff, whatever he's doing. But he's, he's not paying attention over here. And so what it does is it dupes our heart to thinking, no, I'm a Christian because I believe that there's a God. But there's so much more depth there. If you see God as this way, then God is just useful and therefore expendable to you. If God is doing the things that you want him to do, if, he's, uh, if, if you're trying to live a moral life over here and then life is going the way that you want it and you're trying to ask God to transform and change you and it seems to, to be working therapeutically for one sense, um, then you're like, okay, I'm good. I'm, me and God, we're cool. But if any of those things break down, then God immediately becomes expendable because he is not the interpersonal God of Scripture. He's just the God that's aloof. And you know what we do? Deism is a form of self-protection. Look at me. Deism is a form of self-protection to where you say, oh, if things go, if I experience suffering in this life, and you will, if I experience the suffering that I don't like, I can just say, oh, God doesn't care. He's just out there. And so instead of pressing in with faith and wrestling with God the way that Jacob did in the Old Testament, what do we do? We just say, oh, I don't know. I'll come to God whenever it seems to be more expedient for me or maybe whenever he fixes some of the problems that I've asked him to fix. So that's moralistic therapeutic deism. And it is completely antithetical to what God is calling us to, to the dance of the Trinity with us, with him, to where we can enter into the love, the joy, the glory, the glory that he has had for all of eternity, to where we get to enter into the dance with gratitude, with humility. And moralistic therapeutic deism always has you as the victim of this, at the center. You're always at the center. And here we want to be gospel-centered, right? We want to center all of our life on Christ and on Christ alone. So let's go back to kind of our mirror analogy. What happens if you have those mirrors, right, that go on for eternity? What happens if you turn, on the, turn off the light? And it's completely pitch black and dark. Is there any reflection going on then? No. A mirror has no light in itself. We are called to reflect the glory and the image of God. We need the source from on high to reflect his glory. And the only way that we can do that is if we have a clear understanding of his internal nature and if we have a clear internal, if we have a clear understanding of his internal nature, you know what that'll do? It'll magnify the cross. It will magnify the cross. Look at verse 4. It says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Has not overcome it. What we see here is a very clear picture very clear picture of what God is trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate that, yes, I was God from all of existence. I had perfect unity and fellowship in the Godhead. And guess what? There was darkness in the world. 
You were meant to reflect me, but you turned away from my light. And so God, in his providential plan, said, I'm going to make a way when there is no way. And you know what that plan was? That plan was, I will pay the punishment. I will pay the punishment that they deserve for turning away from me. They were supposed to reflect me. They turned away. So I will go be the light of the world and take the punishment for turning away in their place. Do you know what this costs God? Do you understand what this costs God? I think so many of us reflect on the cross of Jesus, and we just think it's transactional. That it's not that big of a deal, right? It's just a transaction. There was a debt. Jesus came. He had infinite resources. He came to pay the debt. Blah, blah, blah. We go to heaven, right? Do you understand the gravity of what Jesus had to agree to in order to accomplish our salvation? Do you understand how deep this was? Therapists say that the greatest pain that we can go through is the broken relationship between a husband and a wife. The deepest pain that we can go through is either through death or through adultery of the breaking of the covenantal vow between husband and wife. That's the deepest pain, according to the majority of therapists, that we can experience. Why? Because it's the relationship that you're most vulnerable with, right? It's the relationship that you're experiencing the most intimacy with, right? It's the relationship that you're supposed to have the most oneness, the most unity with, right? And guess what? What accomplished our salvation was the breaking of the bond of the Trinity for all of eternity that had perfect unity, had perfect love, had perfect glory, had perfect self-sacrifice. Times that times a billion. Times the breakup of a husband and wife times a trillion, million, billion, trillion. I don't even know what number that is. And maybe we'll get a tiny sliver of the pain that God the Father and God the Son had. See how valuable, how valuable the cross was now? Do you see how beautiful the sacrifice was? Do you see how much he loved you to break the bonds of that perfect union? Wow. Wow. I think if someone came up to me after this service and said, Cody, I hated this. I absolutely hated all of Redeemer. From the worship to your preaching, barf, like, and then the room, what's up with the stripes? You know, like, I, I'm never coming back. I'm never going to come back to Redeemer. You know what? That probably ruined my day. It probably hurt, all right? It probably hurt a little bit, but you know what? I'd also get over it. Now, if my wife came up to me and said, you know what, Cody? I hate Redeemer. I hate everything about this. I don't know if I'd get over that. Why? Because our relationship is way deeper than if one of you came up. Do you see the beauty? Do you see the sacrifice that Jesus did in our place? The pain that we experience in adultery is like a mosquito bite to the nuclear explosion that God felt at the cross. Because he was being separated. He was getting the separation that you and I deserved. He was getting, he was getting uh, uh, the broken relationship that you and I should have got. And he had deeper intimacy than we can ever dare imagine. And Jesus says, 
looking at you from the cross. He says, Father, I delight to do your will. I will go and save them no matter the cost, even at infinite pain, infinite treachery to my own self. When Jesus was in the garden, he sweat drops of blood. And don't you dare think he was scared of dying. Don't you dare think that he was scared of the cross. Don't you dare think he was afraid of the spear or afraid of the nails. He was sweating drops of blood because he knew what separation from the Father was going to mean for his soul. The obliteration of his soul whenever he was separated. He got the separation that you and I should have got so that all that is left for us the only thing that is left for us is a welcome, a welcome gesture of well done, good and faithful servant. This is what the cross did. And unless we understand the unique boundness of the Trinity, then the cross will just be another transaction that we think that we earn or we deserve. Because, yeah, God is love. We have to deeply understand how valuable this relationship is between God, the Godhead, and how he willfully gave it up for you. What does that mean about you? Do you sense the joy? Do you feel the love that he has for you? I tell you what, if you get it, if you get it, it'll transform you. It'll absolutely transform you. It will change you. If you and if you're in this room like, Cody, you don't know what I've done. You have no idea what I've done. That's moralism. That's you not believing the good news of the gospel. That's you believing moralistic therapeutic deism. That's you saying that God out there, he wants me to be moral, right? No, no. He broke the bond between father and son that experienced infinite joy for you. And as soon as you see that, as soon as you taste it a little bit, it will transform you. It will begin to transform you. And if you say, well, Cody, I don't have even a glimmer of that. Pray right now. Pray in your heart, God, give me. I don't have any of this. I don't have any faith um, that, you, that you were who you said you were. I don't have any faith that I deserved to die in, in your stead. Will you give it to me? And that, that at that moment, if it's genuine within your heart, there will be a shift that takes place. and It will be the beginning of faith. Will be the beginning of repentance. If you've said, I've never actually turned, I never actually tried to make myself not the center of the universe and never focus on God himself, will you pray and ask God to produce repentance in your heart? Because that is the, that is the beginning of it. The beginning of faith and repentance is admission that you don't have it. Admission that you don't have it. If you want it, confess to him that you don't have it and he'll give it to you. And he'll give it to you. And it'll transform you. And you'll be able to taste a small glimpse of the dance of the Trinity that he has experienced for all of eternity. And it'll transform you. It'll change you. And um, it'll make you into a mirror that faces the light. That you will be able to reflect his image and his glory. I want you to see this. This is why we're starting right here. If we can't get this then we won't be able to know, know that Jesus is the Christ, the true Messiah. Let's pray.